We have come to a unique moment in modern history, a great pause, an opportunity to be still and listen, a moment to step back and observe our usual frenzied pace of life and the numbing required to maintain it, a moment to awake to the possibility of a new way to live, a way of freedom and ease that can only come by awakening to the truth of why we numb and hurry, a way of sharing the load with the one who makes the burden light and the joy deep, the waking way. All right, Element, I am Pastor Benjamin, and this is Pastor Melody, and we're doing something a little different. I think this is the first time we've ever done this precise thing, uh, but we're going we're gonna to teach today together. So a joint message. Um, all right, so we have been engaging in this discussion about living awake or in the waking way for three weeks now. And I think if we had to bring it down to three of the biggest takeaways, they might look something like this. Number one, it is not possible to live caught in the hurry up then crash cycle and also flourish in the unforced rhythms of grace. It's just not going to be possible, at least over time. Number two, depending on coping and numbing to keep us asleep also numbs our capacity to feel joy and freedom. And number three, sharing the easy yoke with Jesus means depending on his strength as we share in his work and he shares in our work. So with those three major takeaways so far, today it's time to talk not about what all this means. We've done that part, but rather what it can look like to live it, what it can look like to live it. In other words, we're going to take the theological and conceptual and we're going to bring it down into the dirt of the ground of the practical. And that's important because the way of Jesus, this Jesus way is about incarnation. It's about fleshing out what it actually looks like, what these truths actually look like, what his teachings actually look like, right? Embodying them and applying that truth in life-changing ways and God-honoring ways. So if you were with us last Sunday or listened after that, you'll remember a story I told about the little slave girl. And in short, a woman purchased and then freed a little slave girl, right? And even though the girl realized that she could do anything or say anything or go anywhere she wanted to with her newfound freedom, what she chose was to stay with the one who freed her, to stay with the one who freed her and join in the work of the one who freed her, right? And we also talked about how living in the waking way means staying in the easy yoke with Jesus, staying in the easy yoke with Jesus. And there's a word for that in the Bible that means staying with or staying in. And John quotes Jesus using this word over and over and over so it's a word worth paying attention to, and it's a word we need to talk about today. And in English, we usually call it or translate it as abide, 
abide. In Greek, it's meno. And this word means to continue to be present, to maintain unbroken fellowship with one. It means to abide. And in our context, to stay in the easy yoke where the burden is light with Jesus. So how do we take these truths about living in the waking way we've learned and make them practical? Well, by talking about how to actually maintain that unbroken fellowship. Now, there are ways to do this, and some call these things spiritual disciplines. Some people might cringe and shudder with that phrase. But these six things we're going to talk about are not something on a checklist. They're not tasks to accomplish They're not the six easy steps to happiness from someone's book. These are the habits of Jesus. These six things are the habits of Jesus that we find in the gospel accounts of his life. Not just what he said and what he did, but how he lived. And we we can't miss that. We can't miss how he lived as well. So these habits, they weren't inv- invented by monks and, or not just for pastors or whomever. This is how Jesus lived a life of abiding with the Father. So with that, we're going to look at these six practical ways, these six habits of Jesus, and start to, to dig deeper into those and maybe take a little bit more ownership of those. So the first habit of Jesus that we're going to look at today as we look at the waking way is simplicity. Simplicity. That's a word that we talk a lot about around here, right? Listen to this quote. Mark Twain said, civilization is the limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. The limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. That sounds That sounds about right, right? That sounds about what civilization is or certainly has become. But the question today is, what is this expansion of civilization doing to our spiritual lives? What is it doing? Um, And is it really contrary to the way of Jesus? Let's think about that for just a few minutes. And we could spend a whole series unpacking the idea of simplicity, and we will be coming back to that very soon, actually, because it is a core value of who we are here at Element, and it's a core value of who Jesus was. But today we're going to think about simplicity specifically as it relates to our conversation that we're having right now about the waking way and about the sleeping way, which was to hurry, to overwhelm, eventually falling asleep, right? And the waking way as being something different. So let's think about how simplicity is so, so related to that. Because specifically right now, in our great pause that we are experiencing in our culture that may be ending soon, we don't know. We have this moment, we're living in this moment, so let's think about it. Our culture is the opposite of simple right now, right? The, the general climate that we live in does not live in the uncomplicated essentials of loving God and loving each other. Our culture is geared towards consumerism, right? And most people believe that more plus more plus more equals better, that's just, how we seem to be wired, right? More things and more money and more titles and more accolades and more social media presence and more life experiences, just more equals better, right? But it wasn't always like this. It was not always like this. And I remember as a little girl, I would read all of these books and stories about the 
American Prairie and the Frontier Days. And I remember being so enchanted by the simplicity with which people used to live. And I remember Laura Ingalls Wilder and you would read about her like one corn husk doll that she had, like literally a doll made out of a corn husk that she played with for years. It was her like one and only toy, right? Or I remember the boxcar children stories from, you know, later on. It wasn't the frontier days, but the boxcar children who made themselves a home in this little boxcar and they went and picked blueberries to eat and they had four spoons for four kids and four bowls and it was so simple, right? I remember this other book that I read. It was, I vividly remember this book. It's been at least 20 years since I even thought of it. But when I was writing this, I thought of it. It was called The Calling of Emily Evans. And it was about this woman pastor who went out to the frontier to be a pastor. And she had nothing to her name. Like, I remember she lived in like a little side room in this parsonage that would, oh, only had a bed. And she would eat the soup that would last for three days. And the only thing that was in the soup was potatoes and water. And one time somebody gave her an onion and it was like they had given her a feast because it was so amazing to add onion to her soup. But what I remember being enchanted about was she loved her life. She was content. She was free and she was living her calling. And I just remember thinking like, what would it be like to live like that? What would it be like to live so simply? It captivated me. But the thing is, you know, and we, we look at the life of Jesus and he pretty much lived like that, right? He lived very simply. We look at stories like that and we look at the life of Jesus and we don't even know how to draw a line between our lives and that kind of a life. Like it just feels so far away, right? But this is so important to the waking way. And our culture has experienced a huge shift about this, right? Listen to this quote from a Wall Street banker from Lehman Brothers that was written over 100 years ago. This is what he wrote. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And they did it. And here we are, right? Here we are living in a society that values these material things and wealth and brand names and stockpiles of things, right? And the value of simplicity has become nearly extinct. Now, listen to this. Alan Fadling said, the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. The drive to possess is an engine for hurry. Remember, the sleeping way begins with hurry. It begins with this rush, right? And the drive that's driving that hurry, a lot of times in our culture is this drive to possess, right? So how do we shift to the Jesus way? What if he was right? What if his teaching wasn't only about simplicity honoring God, but it was about living a simple life to honor ourselves? Because that sort of a life is actually what's most filling for our souls. Because that kind of a life of loving God and loving each other can actually be enough, can actually be best for us. Jesus talks a lot about simplicity. One of the times he talks about it is during the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking a lot about money and possessions, and it's a huge part of, what, of his teaching. And here's one piece that we've all heard before from Matthew 6. He said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart 
will also be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Jesus modeled this sort of simplicity in every part of his life, and he taught about it constantly because his heart was with the Father. His heart was with the Father. So our prayer today is that ours will be there too, that that's where we will find our treasure, that that's where we will shift our focus. And here's the question we're going to just leave ourselves with today because we don't have time to take any more time on it. But the question is this, what would happen to our emotional and physical and mental and spiritual health if we begin to lean into this value of simplicity, not just with our belongings or our money, but with our whole lives, with our whole hearts, to lean into this value of living in the uncomplicated essentials of loving God and loving each other. So, number one, simplicity. Number two, in these six habits of Jesus, is slowing. Slowing. Our friend Zach Elliott wrote a book. Most of you know that, and probably many of you have read that book called Now I See. And on this pace of life and this idea of slowing, um, this is what he writes. It says, Our current cultural pace of life is in direct conflict with love. If we want life to the full in relationship with Jesus, then we walk at his pace. So what does that mean? What's God's pace? What's the pace of Jesus? Well, Pastor Melody gave us a hint a few weeks ago that I don't think we ever saw Jesus in a hurry. So uh, it's back to the brilliant quote that we have used before. We're probably going to use it again um, because of how profound this is from Kosuki Koyama's book, The Three Mile an Hour God. It says, love has its speed. It is a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk and therefore the speed, the love of God walks. Slowing. Slowing enables us to do it differently. Slowing enables us to see, to really see. And that's how you start to go from sleeping to the waking way, isn't it? It enables us to really see. It's like this. You can't appreciate the subtle gradient of yellows on a, on a hibiscus bloom going 75 miles down the interstate, can you? It's impossible. Slowing helps us to see, to really see. Slowing enables us also to breathe. Literally, it helps us to physically breathe, to take in enough air for the moment and exhale it fully. And when that is the agenda of the moment, is to breathe in just enough and exhale what needs to be exhaled, that reminds us that each breath is a gift. That reminds us that God's provision, moment by moment by moment, is enough and it's right. That it's all provision. And slowing also enables us to be 
still, to be still, to be spiritually still, to be mentally still, to be emotionally still, still enough to listen, still enough to know. I was going to point to my head for no, but that's not the no I was talking about, is it? Still enough to know here, right? Still enough to absorb the generosity of grace that permeates the air around us all the time, every moment. Still enough to be challenged to hunger, to keep hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know, when I go on a vacation or a retreat, um, if, if I have anything to say about it, I go to some mountains, right, like a lot of us do. But, you know, when you go on, on a vacation like that, it usually takes a little bit of time. It's not like you just step out of the car and things you're instantly relaxed and instantly still um so it takes maybe even a day or more for that stillness to start to to sink in for that slowing to start to be able to happen and i think we probably all felt that but when it starts to sink in it's magic isn't it think back to a time where you have felt that that slowing that comes from a break it's like I'm looking at the hills and the tree branches are waving in worship and the colors start to radiate more vibrantly than before, right? And I look at my kids and they're just glowing with God's grace. Everything is poetry, right? I'm in the moment and the moment is in me. That's the still and slowing place I'm talking about. But the best news is that we don't have to wait for a couple of vacations or trips or breaks a year to have that moment, to be able to do the slowing that we need to do. Obviously, right now, this quarantine life has gifted us an opportunity, in some ways at least, to slow down and to see. But the normal rhythms of life will return. They are returning. They are returning. So maybe we need to remember that we can go to the place of slowing and seeing and resting and being still whenever we choose. Whenever we choose. We can take that holy knowledge of living at the speed of God's love with us in every season. Maybe we start by intentionally, I don't know, driving the speed limit. I've done that before. I've realized, why am I going over the speed limit? There's no reason to at all. And it helps to just pull me back and not be so urgent. Sometimes I can get stuck in the urgent gear. Maybe it is practicing Lectio Divino, which is like a slow, deep reading of scriptures or a meditation or reflecting on our day with God using the examine or memorizing a verse from the Bible that speaks to us in that moment, in that week, in that season, and let it serve as a mantra, as a reminder for when we feel the compulsion to be urgent, we feel the compulsion to speed, either on the road or elsewhere. Jesus lived slow, long, slow, and deep. And I know we have a lot to do. We have a lot to accomplish for God's kingdom in our own lives, in our, our goals, are the things that we feel called to pursue, I know. But we can pursue them 
like Jesus, long, slow, and deep. And we too can share in that easy yoke when we slow down. So the next one, number three, is Sabbath. Sabbath. Now this is a practice that I have wrestled with over the years. Seriously wrestled with. I mean, it is one of the Ten Commandments, but like we don't live under the old law anymore. So like really, do we practice Sabbath? Is that a thing that we all do, that we should all do? What do we think about this Sabbath situation? Now, I think most of us, first of all, think it sounds super nice. Like, that sounds delightful to just have a whole day every week to relax and delight in the reality of being a human being and worship the creator, right? That sounds awesome. A day each week to sleep and eat and come together with family and friends and be outside and appreciate nature and, you know, cease our hurry and our striving and our achieving and just be and let our being be worship. That sounds amazing. Totally sounds amazing. Of course we should practice the Sabbath. Sounds holy, and it sounds beautiful, and it sounds right. But then come our excuses, right? I know they do for me. Uh, For me, it's something like, well, first of all, I'm a pastor, so I have to work on Saturdays because I have to get my notes ready and music ready and planning center ready and proclaim ready, all these long checklists of things to do on Saturdays. So Saturday's out. And Sunday's definitely out because I'm definitely working on Sunday. And then Monday through Friday, like, I'm parenting. I have three other jobs. And there's there's games and all the things for the children and a house to clean and a business to run. And people need pastor every day of the week. So basically, <laughs> Sabbath is not for me, right? This has been my internal monologue about the Sabbath for many years. But I have studied it. And I have read what Jesus said about it. And I've understood why it's important. And so I've tried it. I tried it, right? We tried a family Sabbath like a year ago where we would, ev- once, one Saturday a month would be our family Sabbath. And that was good and beautiful. It was better than nothing, but it still wasn't the practice of Sabbath. And then I tried, well, I'm going to break up my Sabbath throughout the week. So one morning will be my, you know, reading morning, and another afternoon will be my resting afternoon. And I tried to break it up throughout the week, right? And, and that was good and beautiful, but it still wasn't the Sabbath. And what I did was I comforted myself with the words of Jesus. Because what Jesus said was, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus said those words to the Pharisees who were trying to tell him that working or helping people on the Sabbath was wrong. It was sin because it was going against the Lord's command to rest on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus did not buy into the legalistic dogma, right? So neither should I have to. Jesus did not think it was a sin to not work on the Sabbath, right? But what I was doing was forgetting the first part of what Jesus said, right? And maybe those Pharisees that day needed to hear the second part, that there was space and grace to engage the world around us on the Sabbath. But maybe what I needed to hear was the first part, which is the Sabbath is made for man. The Sabbath is made for man. It is a gift. It is a gift of the creator, and it is holy, and it is communion with him, and it is returning and rest. Dan Allender, in his book on the Sabbath, put it like this. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. It is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, sing, 
pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it, to make it holy. Because a day full of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone in a week. Just let that sit for a second, guys. Is that true? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Our brains don't understand how good that actually is. What a holy gift it is from our creator for us. The Sabbath was created for man. So the Sabbath is a holy gift, but the Sabbath is something else too. The Sabbath is also an act of resistance. An act of resistance. From the very beginning, that's what it was. Because when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were slaves. They were slaves. And a slave doesn't get a Sabbath. A slave doesn't get a day to rest. A slave works all day, every day, until they die. That's the pace of life that they were living. And so the Sabbath command was in resistance to that lifestyle that the Israelites had built up generation after generation of slavery to say, no, we're going to resist. We're going to resist that life of work every day until you die. We're going to resist the hurry. We're going to resist the culture of Egypt that is just about building more and more and more. And that's still what the Sabbath means for us today, right? Resist. Resist. John Mark Comer calls it scheduled social justice. Let that sink in for a second. And he says the Sabbath is a way of saying enough. Enough. Enough with the hurry. Enough with the striving. I have enough. And God is enough. Enough. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means stop. Which means stop, right? And if the, if the beginning of the sleeping way is hurry, then what more active resistance could there be for once a week for us to just say stop? And is it going to cost us something? Yep. <laughs> it's going to cost a lot. But if there was ever a chance to practice the Sabbath, to see what it might be like, like this would be the chance. This great pause would be the chance. And I will tell you, I've chosen to take it seriously for the last couple months. And yes, it is a little easier right now with schedules being what they are. But honestly, maybe it's that it's easier or maybe it's just that I finally come to the place where I admit how much I need it. Where I admit that I need to cease that striving and embrace the presence of God. In a weekly rhythm, just as our creator designed, right? John Mark Comer says about halfway through his Saturday Sabbaths, that his soul catches up with his body. His soul catches up with his body. I think that is such a beautiful way to put it because that's what happens. And what Benjamin was talking about, about the slowing, the slowing is what we do on the Sabbath and our soul catches up to our body. And it brings us towards wholeness and towards union with our creator. Now, I do not do it perfectly, even on this, even on these Months where I could have been mostly perfect about it. I have not been perfect about it. And that is okay. Jesus taught us that we don't have to be legalistic about it. But he did invite us to embrace it. This holy gift. This act of resistance. The Sabbath. We learn to practice it. One step at a time. All right. And the next 
habit of Jesus that we want to talk about is silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude, that is where we actually are able to start to hear the still, small voice, right? It's not a task to check off. This is how we abide. We remain in the easy yoke with Jesus. This is where we hear the gentle invitation to remain. So uh, in uh, the Gospels, Jesus was led into the desert, right, after he was baptized. Um, and there he fasted for 40 days and was tempted by the tempter. And you may know the story. But the word for where he went to, we just read it as desert, translated as desert. But Eremos is the word. And more than desert, it really means solitary and, and desolate. Solitary and desolate. And if that sounds not fun right now, just put a pin in that. We'll get, we'll get to that in just a second. But Eremos solitary and desolate but look at the helps word studies on this it says um an uncultivated unpopulated place um and check this out is ironically also where god richly grants his presence and provision for those seeking him now that's just like god isn't it you go to a desolate place to receive the provision that you need. And that's what solitude and silence does for us. It puts us in a place where we know what we receive from God is from God. We know it because it's the only voice out there because we have slowed and stilled and chosen the silence and solitude. Now, silence and solitude that can have certain meanings for some of us as social people. I said us like I'm like I'm one of those. Um, but some of you, some of you are. And um, but there's a difference between solitude and isolation. There's a difference. Let's contrast those two words. Solitude is safety. It's the safest place. But isolation is dangerous. Solitude is opening up to God. Isolation opens us up to temptation and lies. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Isolation is inner loneliness. At least it will become that at some point. Solitude empties us of the things we need to be emptied of, of our ego, of our sin, of our lusts, of our shame, of our pride. There's an emptying that only comes in silence and solitude. But isolation empties us of our peace and joy and clarity. So you, you see the difference. So if that's what solitude is really all about, then why do we fear it? <laughs> why do we fear it? Why do we avoid it? Maybe it's because we've confused the two, the solitude versus isolation maybe it's because we've let our minds grab on to the fallacy that this is this is monks this is for monks and pastors and hermits and people from long ago or maybe 
we're afraid that if we sit still even for a moment, we'll be afraid we won't like what it is that we see. And maybe we're afraid to get in that moment because we feel like God is really seeing us. As if he doesn't already see us and love us just as we are. And I'll be honest with you, silence and solitude, when you step into those spaces, that can happen. You can see all the things that you really don't want to see about yourself. And that's why we want to avoid it. That's why it feels scary. But that's the first step of seeing so that we can begin to embrace God's favor and love and mercy all the way into those places. So they have to be opened up to receive the grace all the way down. And remember, Eremos, the deserted place. That holy irony we talked about, that's the place where God richly grants his presence and provision for those who seek him there. John 8, 31 um, says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We may be familiar with that passage, but look at it in this light. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What we're saying is that silence and solitude gives us the time and space we need to know the truth and let the truth set us free. It's hard to try to live that out, knowing the truth and letting the truth set us free in a hurry. That's probably impossible because there's a difference, like I said earlier, between knowing here and knowing all the way in here. Jesus himself practiced solitude. We know this. He climbed mountains to get away. He set sail to find the time he needed to recharge, to sleep, to sleep, to take naps. Naps are holy. Write that down. Um, he took his friends through the garden to pray with him, right? But he went, on, he went on by himself to engage the Father alone. Guys, solitude might look different for all of us, and it's going to look different for us in the different seasons of our lives as well. So the question becomes, what does... What does your mountain look like? What does your escape by boat look like? What does your garden look like? Maybe it looks like your closet or your shower or your car or your bed when you wake up or before you go to sleep. Maybe it's under the trees and under the night sky. Maybe right now in your life you can find a few moments a day of solitude and silence. Maybe you can do it once a week right now. But the truth that we need to own is that Jesus lived this way. This was a habit of, of his to abide with God. He found the freedom and the wholeness and the peace that only comes from silence and solitude and receiving in the place of Eremos. And so we can too. So number five. 
sacraments, sacraments. Now I'm going to be brief about this one, so stay with me so they hear what I'm saying, because we can just see sacraments on a list of spiritual <laughs> disciplines and be like, okay, great, I'll take my communion and be baptized, awesome. I'm talking about that for sure, but I'm talking about more than that, and we're going to look at the life of Jesus to see what I mean by that, because we're not just talking about communion and baptism, and we're not just talking about the regular spiritual practices of prayer and reading and gathering and things like that. Those, of course, are sacramental. But what if, what if a sacrament is anything that points us towards God, towards a whole and flourishing life, and towards the one true narrative of redemption? What if that is a sacrament? So let's think about how Jesus embraced those sorts of things. I think that there are as many stories of Jesus sitting down to dine with his friends and followers as, they are, as there are of him going off alone to pray, right? He ate with the harlots. He ate with the tax collectors. He fed the people on the mountainsides. He uses bread and wine to actually demonstrate his sacrifice, right? And his very first miracle was at a wedding where he turned water into wine. Do we notice this about Jesus? And does it matter to us? Also, Jesus noticed the beauty of this creation. And he talked about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and mentioned how much God cares for those things. So it seems that Jesus, the holy, all-powerful Son of God, came to earth. It seems that Jesus knew how to take pleasure in the beauty of this world. Yes, that is the word I mean. Pleasure. Pleasure. God created pleasure. And could it be, could it be that he created it so that our everyday lives would be filled with signs of the divine? So that our everyday lives would be filled with things that point us towards him, towards joy and beauty and goodness. But this does get tricky. It does get tricky because uh, what about the sleeping way? What about coping? What about numbing? Like, I thought the, the pleasures did those things. So how do we know the difference? How do we allow something pleasurable to be a sacrament instead of a coping mechanism? And I think that's a really important question to ask. We have to ask ourselves that question because if we're not aware, if we're not awake, we can end up just substituting one coping mechanism for another. And that is not going to get us very far down the waking way, right? So, you know, I'm going to use running as an example for me. I, I, could, I run, if you guys know that. I could use running as a coping mechanism, right? I could use it to get away from my family or get away from my work or to have just one more thing that I can achieve at and push towards and strive towards or become obsessed about my numbers and winning, obsessed about some unhealthy standard for my weight or my looks, and I can drown out the chaos with another kind of chaos and shirk other duties that I have because of my commitment to the sport, right? And if I were to do that with running, it would be a coping mechanism. It wouldn't be a sacrament, but it would be a sacrament for me. Because if, if I choose to engage in the practice of running to keep my physical body healthy so that I can feel well and whole, then it becomes a sacrament. And if I choose to engage in the practice of running so that I can keep my mental space clear so that I can be a better mom and a better wife and a better pastor, then that's a sacrament. And if I use it to take time for
or a sacrifice. And I'm sure you have something in mind in your life that can be one or the other for you, right? So here's a question we can ask ourselves when we're thinking about these pleasures. We can ask ourselves this question. Does my attachment to this thing lead to my flourishing and the flourishing of others? If so, it's full of sacramental grace and purpose. Does my attachment to this thing lead to my flourishing and the flourishing of others? If so, it is full of sacramental grace and purpose and the flourishing of others. Could it, could it be that simple? I think it could be. I think it could be. Because we are created for pleasure. And healthy experiences of pleasure draw us, point us towards the heart of God. Point us towards beauty and joy and goodness. And that's the waking life. And finally, number six, community. I know we ruined the S's. We had five S's. What were we thinking? Community. Um, and I know what you're thinking. You might be thinking, Jesus? We talked, we we're saying that these are habits of Jesus, the way that he lived. What community did Jesus have? But we have to realize something. Even though when he started his ministry, he was a homeless man, a vagabond, which he was, staying with people, with strangers many times. But with him were his disciples, and there were many. There were many, and from among those he chose the 12. Jesus had a community. Jesus had a community. And for us we have to see that waking to our pain requires that community. Waking to our coping mechanisms. Waking to life and the easy yoke. These things require community. But more importantly than that, staying awake requires community. That's crucial. Staying awake, walking in the waking way requires community. If we're having trouble staying in the waking way and choosing these habits of Jesus, then let's ask ourselves, let's ask ourselves, are we just participating in church? Or are we walking alongside each other in a waking community? In a waking community. Church is what it says on our logo and on our government paperwork. But a waking community is a church that has decided to wake up and stay awake together, together. A community that does the work of keeping each other awake and in the easy yoke. A community that supports one another as we lay down, as we recognize and choose to lay down our hurry and our coping and turn toward the habits of Jesus together. An element let me affirm you for just a minute. You are a waking community. You are a waking community, and it's beautiful. We do this. We keep each other in the waking way in our house churches, in our e-kids classes, in our youth. We do this in our teaching and our worship together and our Bible study. We do it with parable and poetry and prayer. We do it by joining in the kingdom work of our city together. So 
You are awakened community. But let my encouragement be this. If you've never seen element in that light before in that way, I encourage you to take notice of that. That this body of Christ, this family is awakened community. And if you haven't participated in this body in that way before, each of us has something to give and each of us has something to receive as we help each other remain in the waking way. We all have something to teach. We all have something to learn from one another. That's awakening community. My second encouragement is this. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep being awakening community. Keep being one, but also lean harder into it. Lean harder into it. Keep doing these things with a gentle grace and a steady presence. Lean into boldly speaking the truth to one another while also leaning into the wisdom to patiently flesh out that truth with one another. Lean deeper into sharing our stories about us following the habits of Jesus and learning how to do it and learning how to try it differently from one another. That's a waking community. So as we finish up today, here's the deal. These six things are not the waking way, right? These six things are practices on the path of the waking way. But they are not the way. They are not the end game, right? They're not a prescription or a checklist where we say, well, if we have these six things, then we're definitely awake. Like, no. They're practices. They're practices that we are drawn to because of the spirit of Christ that's alive in us. The spirit of Christ that's alive in us draws us to these things because practices, right? And these things are true because they're true, no matter what you call them, right? They are how a human stays awake. And they're the way that Jesus lived, not just the things that he taught. They're the way that he lived. And they are the way that the Spirit of Christ alive in us will draw us to live. But it's not about these things being the end game, right? It's not about simplicity. It's about freedom to flourish while keeping our focus on the most important thing, which is love. That's what it's about, right? It's not about slowing. It's about pacing ourselves with the speed of love so that we can continuously give and receive it, right? It's not about Sabbath. It's about rest and delight and a life of ease and wonder and worship where our soul can catch up with our body. And it's not about silence and solitude. It's about quieting ourselves enough to hear the truth and allowing the truth to set us free. It's not about sacraments. It's about allowing the good things of life to point us to the good things of God. And it's not about community, but it's about walking alongside others who choose to live awake, staying awake together so that we can see Jesus in them and they can see Jesus in us and together we abide in a waking way. And here's the other beautiful truth about this. Waking gives way to more waking. Did you ever notice when energy starts to build in you when you're doing something, it, it, it continues to build. Like energy gives more energy. Waking gives more waking. And as 
we live with these practices and lean into them, more things will come awake within us, right? And we will discover more capacity to live freely and lightly in the unforced rhythms of grace. Forgiveness will wake up within us. Creativity will wake up within us. And hope and peace and joy and love within us. That's the waking. So let's pray. God, we thank you for these truths this morning and this chance to take a moment and look at the way that you lived when you were a human here on this earth. And God, I pray that we would just keep our eyes on the life of Jesus as we begin to engage these practices in a deeper way, and that as we look to him, he would come more and more alive in us. God, help us to wake up. Help us to love these practices. Help us to embrace these practices, not as something legalistic, but as something that generates joy, something that keeps us awake to what you're doing and who you've called us to be on this earth. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray.